0: Hello, and you're very welcome to the week that really was with John McGurk and Sarah Ryan. It's the first of June, twenty twenty three, the beginning, amongst other things, of Pride Month. Also, the beginning, I think, of summer officially. And it's been a very, very busy week uh, in Ireland. There have been lots of things happening. Um, we'll start though with the big news that uh, that is that is which is that this week we are not alone on this podcast because we have been joined by a friend of the show and all around person who's generally smarter than both me and David when he was on, and probably me and Sarah when he's here now, that is Mr. Cormac Lucy. Cormac, we're delighted to have you. Thank you, John. Hi, Sarah. I wanted wanted to start by tossing um, the slightly lesser important news of the week to both of you, which is that Helen McEntee um, has returned from her maternity leave and is once again taking up the helm of the Department of Justice, which will no doubt have criminals across the country quaking in their boots. Before we went on air, I was saying that I, I... I didn't really notice that she was gone. I don't think I'll notice much that she was back because it seems to me that ministers these days can slot in and out of departments without any change in policy because they aren't setting the policy anyway. they are more spokespeople than decision makers. But Sarah, you were of the view before we came on air that uh, it is actually important in its own way to see uh, Helen McIntyre being a role model for people that you can have a career, you can have babies and you can have it all.
1: Yeah, and I think that there's a lot of, you know, narrative around all of the barriers to women getting into politics and whatever and that creates a sort of a an idea that or a a situation where and I've said this before on the podcast which is that you know women the 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 women get challenged less on their competence a lot of the time because you know we need more women in politics and there's gender quotas and all all this so getting maternity leaves visible getting all this visible I just think like hastens our advance in terms of being able to actually get back to conversations about competence and and the quality of women who are getting into politics. And so it's good for politics for people to be seen to go on maternity leave. It's good for women in politics. I'm all for that. But the fact that you can slot in and out like that kind of without much of a problem kind of was a bit worrying from a ministerial point of view at the same time.
0: We kind of have an insider with us this weekend that Cormac Lucy was, of course. You, you, how many years, Cormac, did you work in the Department of Justice? And Five, five years you were there. Um, so you know what it sort of takes. I mean, how, how, how long will it take her to get back up to speed now that she's gone back in, first of all? And secondly, um, what's your general view? I mean, do you think I'm right that it doesn't make any difference and that she wasn't missed, or am I being unfair and, as my critics would
2: say, sexist? I think a different thing makes a difference. <clears throat> when I was there, uh, the Department of Justice was <clears> that the, the train set that Michael McDool had always lusted after as a child, hoping <laughs> he'd find it at the bottom of the Christmas tree as a Christmas present. And he took, uh, adopted a hands-on management approach to that department. So he chaired the weekly management meeting of all of the assistant secretaries and principal officers. Mm-hmm. And he drove the agenda each week saying, where have we moved on this policy area? We were supposed last week to do A and B. What's the story? What are we going to do next week? I get the feeling that that is simply not happening at all under any minister of this government. And I think it's one of the reasons for the serial incompetence, the the serial inability to deliver. So we've got a complete mismatch with this government between utterances and statements on the one hand, which are perfection and Reality and delivery, on the other hand, which is a complete disaster. And I think the, 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 the explanation and the missing link is managerial competence. And, and to start with managerial competence, you've got to be interested in management and want to manage and be ready to manage. And I think uh, none of the current crop of ministers knows or is bothered or cares. And therefore, that's why we're in the predicament we are in so many policy areas.
0: I saw that last week, 24,000 people on TikTok listened to me ranting for five minutes about um, just what you've just said, which is about the, the quality of ministers. And I was making the point, it was actually about Simon Harris, uh, who's stepping aside as department uh, as Minister for Justice that, you know, he went into that job, and it's the same is true of Helen McIntyre. They're running a very large organization. The Department of Justice, I presume, has a couple of thousand employees, like the Department of Health and Environment and all the rest of it, with no managerial experience whatsoever. Michael McDowell, when he was in that office, he had been Attorney General. He'd been a practicing barrister for many years. He was he was familiar with giving orders and giving instructions. Do you think it it, it shows that we've got a lot of and I don't want to be ageist, as well as sexist, but we've got a lot of young ministers who've never really run anything or been in a position of authority who are suddenly running very large departments and don't know what to do. Do you think that's a, a, a genuine issue? Or
2: do you no. think it's, it's, it's no, ageist? No, it's not. Michael Collins didn't have experience of running anything. Hmm. And uh, he set up the state. So I don't think it's to do with age. I think it's to do with the attitude people have to politics and what they think politics is. And I think with the younger generation, and here it is, there is a generational issue. There's far, far, far too much of an emphasis. There's almost an exclusive emphasis on uh, projecting what they believe and imagining that that is sufficient. So if I, you know, if I'm trying to combat racism, rather than get the guardie to entrap people into acts of racism, which would be filmed and then prosecuted, they they put up this ridiculous hate crimes uh, act, which which simply can won't be enforced <clears throat> except in the most egregious of cases, and then uh, at, at the risk of of severe injustice. So I, I, I think there's a there's a mentality problem with a generation of politicians across the developed world who is more focused or which is more focused on image and projecting their virtue than on actually delivering outcomes for their voters.
0: It's a little bit like when you talk to a 10-year-old in, in a school and say, what would you do if you were running the world? And they say, well, I'd make hate illegal. That kind of, yeah, that kind of answer.
2: Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's what they're doing. And it's, it's, it's dreadful. And like uh, we're, I just did the, the count in terms of the most critical area of lack of delivery by this government, uh, housing. Last year, there were just under 30,000 dwellings completed, but the population grew by Mm 88,800. So even the the, the supposed fantastic rate of of dwelling completion, if you were to believe government spokespeople, it it falls short of what would house just the growth in population, never mind address the, the existing shortage of housing. And, you know, back when... He was housing minister uh, 2015, 2016. Simon Colfney declared a housing crisis. Since then, we've had Alan Kelly, Owen Murphy, and now we've got Dara O'Brien. And can you really say that we have made any progress at all in addressing this crisis for ministers into the crisis?
0: Or or that any minister has had any particularly distinctive policy. I mean, the thing that strikes me, Sarah, when I look back at ministers for housing is I can't really think of those four ministers, and this this buys into my theory, by the way, that the 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 departments are running the government rather than the government running the departments. I can't really think of any major distinctive policy differences between those four ministers. I mean, there've been different things repackaged and announced, but I, I haven't seen any major differences in approach. Have you?
1: No, and I think that you know it's 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 both of what you're both saying is true in the sense that. You know, there's an ideology, uh, like ideology dread politician, ideology led politician who doesn't, you know, have any managerial experience and an age issue. But there's also, as I've said before, a lack of thinking. I mean, like no one's coming to their departments with even one big idea. And I'll be honest, I used to kind of sneer and laugh a bit about Michal Martin's smoking ban. But now I've kind of changed my mind in the sense that, you know, maybe maybe if you become the minister in a in a department, the chances are you'll probably only get one big idea through. And that, that might be enough for your for your time there. And it's something to hang your hat on and be proud of. And I haven't seen a lot of one big ideas in any department in a long time.
2: Yeah. And that
1: comes from a place of, you know, you're you're right in the sense that or Cormac's right in the sense that the ideology issue is massive, and that goes across across the world that now it matters what you think about you know how woke you are and how you virtue signal on a number of key issues is the most important thing about you but I still think that as well as that an experience and we've discussed this on the podcast before John you know like I can literally remember key moments in my career and I wouldn't say that I'm experienced enough by any by any stretch of the imagination to be a minister but I can remember key moments in my career when I first managed one person when I first managed two people when I made mistakes and I absolutely was quaking in my boots when I made mistakes on spreadsheets being called up in a meeting to account for myself and now we have people who manage you know billion euros worth of portfolio who have no experience of accountability managing one person or any of those things and we just accept
0: it yeah I, I, we do and by the way I know you, you said me hall martin but I was just checking there you've been in politics since 1989 um, which is five years fewer than I've been alive. Uh, and uh, the smoking ban is really it. That's it. That's what he has to show for. I, I know and like just third, to be clear, I'm not
1: i'm not I'm not saying that he's some you know and something to aspire to, but in to be what well, I will give credit for is the smoking ban was an idea. he brought it to fruition like he that's did. you know, it's something but
2: but and, the danger is the danger is he set a, a very bad example. and now, We've got Stephen Donnelly doing a pale imitation of this, putting uh, warning labels on bottles of wine and driving the the Italians and the French nuts. Mm.
0: And and now we have restrictions on vaping. There's talk of fat taxes. There's the minimum alcohol pricing. We could go on all day. But. I do want to move on because it's very important to mention um, before we get it, we're going to talk about economics in a little while because i Cormac, Cormac with us, but I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the other big news of the week, which was that the Eroptis endorsed this week. Now, we're not sure whether it will become law because it's an opposition bill and it was only in second stage, so it may not become law in its current form. But nonetheless, the Dáil, the elected House of Representatives in Ireland, uh, voted this week to uh, enable... Abortion up to six months of a pregnancy and to decriminalize it in almost all circumstances, which is an expression of will by the elected parliament. That's what they're in favor of, um, which is controversial enough if it didn't come just four years after the people of this country voted um, by a comfortable majority in a referendum to change the law uh, on abortion on the understanding that there would be strict limits and that it would be at 12 weeks and that abortion would be illegal outside of what was described at the time as a very limited range of circumstances. Sarah and I, I think it's a matter of public record, both voted no. So I want to come to you on this, corner because you, uh, I hope I'm not telling tales at the school there, but I understand you voted yes. Um, what's your view on the how quickly the legislation has evolved as somebody who did vote yes?
2: Well, I did vote yes, and I, I, I wrote publicly about why I was voting yes. Uh, but I, I was. Uh, it took me a while to make my mind up, and I was a bit of a fence sitter prior to that. And I wasn't uh, an overwhelmingly enthusiastic yes voter. I think there's a fundamental issue facing us uh, again across the developed world <laughs> regarding democracy. And when you listen to spokespeople from countries that are not democratic about democracy they suffer from the illusion that democracy is majority rule Mm -hmm. and that if only the majority could uh, get to vote in Russia, they'd throw Putin out and life would be wonderful. My understanding of democracy would go a significant step further, and it is that the, the defeated people accept the verdict of the election. And that is democracy in the sense that you've got give and take from both sides you've got a, a, an objective way of counting the the vote, and when the votes are counted, you accept the result, and life can resume to normal. And I think one of the big problems we have these days is that that acceptance of defeat has gone out the window. Now, the most obvious example is Trump and uh, the 2020 election. But if you go back to Trump and the 2016 election it's absolutely clear that Hillary Clinton and her supporters did not accept his election and they contrived this whole Russiagate thing to, to try to overturn the, the outcome of that election. My concern coming back to the question you asked on, on this abortion uh, bill that was passed in, in the Dáil this week is that here we have a case where the victors may not be accepting the outcome of the election. That as Sarah says, the, the the amendment was changed, but on the understanding that there would be a restrictive form of abortion permission thereafter. And this Doyle vote overturns that. Uh, and allowing an abortion up to six months, you're really pushing up to the level where uh, children can survive at that level. Uh, I had two, two nephews born very premature, and uh, they survived. They've both got Stunning master's degrees that just passed and are in the workforce. So I, I, I just think at a constitutional, democratic, uh, public policy level, what they're doing and the way they're doing it is is mistaken, and is it's going to add to certain people's feelings that the system is always rigged against them. And if you give these guys an inch, they'll take a mile. Mm-hmm.
0: Sarah, I was saying on, on social media today that I hope that people, you know, regardless of what their views on the topic might be, might consider the next time there's a referendum and they're told that something will be restricted, whether, whether or not they believe that. I mean, I, I think the people who should be most upset about this are the people campaigning for assisted suicide. Because you know if there's a bill introducing assisted suicide, it will be sold to the public on the basis that it's very limited, very restrictive, only for people who have very terminal illnesses, and that will never go further than that. How how can anyone take that kind of promise on a topic like that seriously? Having watched what happened this week, am I is that is that something that strikes you, or do you have more fundamental objections?
1: Well, I I mean I obviously have fundamental objections, but like that's kind of written off by the fact that I voted no i think the people who should be you know annoyed about this are people who were you know kind of on the fence um at the time and and voted you know uh, like the narrative throughout the referendum was definitely about a restrictive regime it was only in this case it was only in that case it was only to allow the hard cases of people who were traveling or whatever and that's proven to not be the case, that there's an agenda here that is to drive this for the most liberal possible abortion regime possible. So for people, and and I've said before, it's not a secret that, you know, I come from a family that's literally split down the middle. My parents are pro-choice. They were yes voters. I'm not. um, Some of my siblings aren't. And, um, you know, I think that people who voted yes you know, on the basis of a restrictive regime should be should be annoyed, should be should feel calm because they were. And yeah, future referenda on on other issues, very much um, you know, taking it taking with a pinch of salt or a, a good handful of salt anything that you're told by the government. Once you take once the, the the power on this issue was taken away from the people, it was going to be it was going to be anyone's guess what would happen in the future and the other thing about it is that the breakdown of the vote was really cynical in my view and really disappointing loads of people abstaining just not showing up for the vote just a level of cowardice and I just feel like most of the TDs I know they should aspire to better than voting or abstaining from a bill that Breed Smith is putting forward to be perfectly honest.
0: Mm. Yes well, I remember uh, people telling me during the abortion, our friend. And this is all I'll say on the matter. That uh, that twelve weeks was sufficient because ninety-seven percent of abortions took place before then, and all other circumstances were already covered. Fatal fetal abnormalities where the woman was 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 going to be in danger, those would be covered, and that it was absolutely absurd to suggest that abortion will be available up to six months. As some of our posters said might happen, that was those those claims were actually fact checked and, and found to be false by the media. Um, that hadn't expired of four years. And also, um, if those, if, if what the other side was saying was true, why do we even need to pass this bill? By their own definition during the campaign, all that was necessary to do has already been done. So I think in terms of which side in that referendum we're, we're telling porky pies, I think there needs to be a little bit of a reassessment of that. Uh, but we won't spend too much uh, more time on it because I think it's, it, it's one that speaks for itself. And if you don't see the problem, uh, we can't help you. Moving on. This week, the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council issued a warning to the government, Cormac, in which they basically said that there was no room for tax cuts or indeed any kind of spurge in spending because of how volatile the Irish tax base is. It said that most of our corporation tax revenue on which the country's surplus is founded is based on the contributions of just three entities, um, which... Is interesting and concerning in its way. I suppose a lot of a lot of your views on depend on how stable you see those entities as being. But we also had this week an increase in tax for people driving cars. Um, fuel went up in price. We see continued plans to introduce new taxes and fees on things that the government don't think we should be doing. Uh, we've got. You mentioned the wine labelling, which isn't a tax, but there are various other examples of sort of sin taxes being introduced. And the statement that bothered me really this week was, was, I think it was Michael McGrath, who said that if he didn't put up taxes on fuel, the state would lose €700 million as if it's the state's money and not the people's. So I just wanted to get your view on what the Fiscal Advisory Council did, whether the government should be listening to them, and sort of your general take on the economic situation in the country as it's played out over the last couple of weeks with the argument about tax cuts and whether or not we can have
2: Well, I think the Fiscal Advisory Council is a very useful addition to the Irish economic landscape and they do excellent analysis. And their essential job is to make sure that the Irish government, in terms of its budgetary policy and the macroeconomic impact of that, stays on the straight and narrow, and that they produce a Goldilocks solution where they're not doing too much, they're not doing too little, they're doing what's right. My concern about IFAC, the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, and other uh, public sector worthies who opine on fiscal policy, such as the Central Bank and the ESRI, is that they seem far more ready to shoot down suggested tax cuts than they ever are to shoot down suggested expenditure increases and there's a political asymmetry perhaps bias in uh, in their stances that i resent i have to say uh, and if we look at just if we just look at taxation i've written a piece for the sunday times this weekend and I was looking at this question and I just wanted to look at a na- really narrow part of tax policy. And that was the relationship of the threshold before you become a top income tax rate payer, before you move from 20 to 40%. Mm-hmm. I wanted to look at the relationship between that threshold and the average wage. And we've heard lots of talk from the left that Fine Gael and Fianna Foyle are right-wing parties uh, I've heard one uh, right winger that I, I know very well say that he when, that, that he visited Pascal Donoghue's office, Doyle office where, when Fineguel were in opposition, and the, the bookshelves were garlanded with books from Friedrich Hayek uh, and <laughs> the like. Uh, but when you examine Fine Gael's footprint on this key question, they have been allowing average wages rise much, much faster than they have raised the tax band. So as a result, even in good years from 2015 onwards, they have been allowing uh, an increased share of taxpayers move up into the higher tax bracket. They have been allowing people already pay the tax bracket have to pay an increased share of their, they've been pushing through stealth income tax increases. And I can guarantee you one thing, we will never see analysis of that from the ESRI uh, or from the Fiscal Advisory Council. And it irks me. And if I were if I were in Michael McGrath's shoes, one of the first thing I'd be doing would be saying, Why are we spending a lot of state money on analysis that isn't isn't aligned with our political interests and may be aligned with the interests of those who may be opposed to us? So I'm for tax cuts. Uh, I accept IFAC's logic, and I would accompany the tax cuts by a bit of extra spending constraint so that the overall fiscal impulse being given by the government was unchanged but that the emphasis of government goodies shifted considerably from increasing government spending towards giving tax relief.
0: That makes sense. I mean, uh, Sarah, it strikes me that we've got an NGO for every group in this country that is funded by the state, um, except, except taxpayers. I I, I look in Britain, there's the Taxpayers Alliance uh, in the United States. I can't remember what Grover Norquist's group are called, but they represent the interests of taxpayers. And, I sometimes wonder, you know, if you and I ever kind of fall on hard times, whether we shouldn't set up a group, call it the Taxpayers Alliance, campaign for lower taxes and go to Michael McGrath and say, will you fund every other NGO? Will you fund us to do important research on the interests of the people who actually run the state? I don't think we'd get much cash, though, would we? <laughs>
1: no, we just probably get, we probably wouldn't even get the meeting, to be honest, because, you know, we're alt-right or whatever we are at the moment. Um, and these kind of ideas, you know, the very idea that taxpayers would get some of their money back um, is, you know, practically blasphemous at this point. So, um, no, I don't think we'd get very far. But I think that there is a huge cohort of people who are massively underrepresented in this area. And, uh, you know, I've spoken before on the podcast about friends of mine, you know, two couples, you know, pretty good earners, paying childcare, paying mortgages, paying this, paying that, and their disposable income at the end of the day being very, very, very low. And, you know, equal to, equal, nearly to social welfare after all their bills are paid. And so I think those people are very unrepresented and I think that the, the, the reaction to it, the idea of tax cuts being floated a couple of weeks ago was, you know, depressing. But some of my friends who aren't particularly political kind of aghast at at the, at the idea that it was snatched away from them so quickly you know what i mean and and, and, and given what they're paying they're just no one speaks for them put it that way
0: mm. did you fuel your car this week uh on I, I filled mine yesterday in anticipation of the tax rise that was hitting me today so i've avoided that cost for another week but it strikes me as a as a good example of the kind of strange thinking we have in the country because we do have an inflationary crisis, we have a cost of living crisis. Inflation, I think uh, underlying inflation, the figure this week um, is still higher um, for consumers in Ireland than it is in a lot of places in the EU. And here's the government slapping on. I mean, I know they're not slapping on a tax, they're letting a tax decrease expire, but they're still allowing costs to rise for ordinary families for reasons that aren't immediately clear because it's very clear from the budgetary figures that the state does not immediately need the Cash that they're going to glean from the fuel increase, and it just struck me—it's one of those things that has a bit of cut through. My neighbour, who's not a very political person at all, was raging about it uh, at me today. It's the kind of basically political decision that strikes me as a little bit boneheaded. It's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's a very easy thing to just say, no, we're going to let that go for another few months.
2: I mean, well, there, well, the great, the great Irish writer Flan O'Brien. Uh, spent his life, his his professional life, working as a civil servant in the Department of Lands. And in his gothic masterpiece, The Third Policeman, it it essentially centres on the the, the lunatic premise that if you're riding a bicycle around the place long enough, that the atoms of your arse interchange with the atoms of the saddle. And you, you, you eventually adopt some of the personality of the bike And the bike eventually adopts some of your personality. This is what we have now with ministers and civil servants. There's been an interchange uh, at the saddle and arse of atoms, and they're beginning to think and act and behave like one another. And uh, allowing that excise rise back again, that was the act of a civil servant. But it was carried out by a political minister.
0: Yes, it reminds me of the old yes minister scene where Sir Humphrey is just talking about the treasury and he says they, 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 they don't ask how much money they they need, they pitch for as much as they can get and then decide what to spend it on later. Yeah. Um, and that is that is is very much the attitude that's infested the civil service, which comes back to this basic idea of political leadership. I was, Sarah, in terms of Fianna Fall, I was reading this week about a very testy exchange that occurred at the parliamentary party between the youngest member of the parliamentary party, James something or other in Cork. I'm sorry, I can't remember his name.
1: James, and, he's referred to as Jamesy in the article. Yeah,
0: yes. Jamesy e. O'Connor, is it? And Mm E. Hall Martin, in which he was basically reading the Tawnish to the Riot Act and said, you know, you've broken your promises. Don't do what you say you'll do. I mean, I think some of the promises he's referencing were, you know, to open a hospitalist constituency or the usual sort of things that backbench TDs care about. But I thought it was very notable, that sort of generation gap, that here's a young guy who presumably wants a career in politics, who's presumably a little bit ambitious, who's looking at the state of the party that he's in and saying, you're not cutting it anymore. and you know, the the reaction in the room was kind of silence, and then Michal Martin gave him one of his best headmaster in the schoolroom dressing downs. What was your take yeah. as sort of a, a Finafall um stalwart on that? Well, it's a bit of a stretch, but
1: yeah, uh no, I thought it was really notable. It was the article quoted that two people came to Michal's defense, both of them were ministers, and uh of course so you know me hall people and i think it's just symptomatic of the fact that here's a young td first term as far as i know he's only 24 25 years of age as you say he probably has a, a plan to be have a career in politics and he's looking at feed on 15% and he's he, he 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 said it's he said himself that his constituency has one of the largest asylum centers in ireland as far as i know that the 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 article said that he'd said anyway and um There aren't resources for them. He's obviously clearly getting it in the neck from his constituents. He's seeing the next general election. He's seeing himself losing his seat. He's worried about the future of Fianna Fáil. He's worried about the next general election. And Michal isn't because Michal doesn't care because Michal's all right, Jack.
0: That's what Uh, that's about exactly, and that's I I I mentioned that because I wanted to ask Cormac a question because Cormac, you started the show by talking about uh, what democracy is supposed to be and how it's supposed to work and losers' consent and all of those things, which I completely agree with. But there's another basic reason that democracy is supposed to work as a system of government, which is incentives, and the incentive. Is that if you elect somebody, basically, their 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 aim is to stay in power, and your aim as a voter is to have the country run well. So it is in their is in their rational interest to do the best possible job and to stay on side of, on side with the voters. And yet, it seems to me, and I stress, it seems to me, so this is a subjective point of view, that 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 in the case of Fall in particular, but Finnegale as well, we have politicians out who are acting irrationally. So if you look at issues like immigration or income tax cuts, or law and order, or what we talked about with the abortion bill, um, or the increase in excise duty. We have political parties in this country that are struggling to maintain the share of the vote they had at the last election, who are missing clear and obvious rational opportunities to side with the voters. And to me, that's extraordinary, and it is really, I think, symptomatic of the growing frustration. And people talk about the rise of the far right. There's a sense in some quarters of society which... I'm not endorsing the sense, but there's a sense that politicians don't really represent us anymore. They're representing somebody else um, to us and they're enacting a kind of, you hear people talking about a globalist agenda or the World Trade Organization or whatever it is. Um, what's your explanation for why it is that politicians seem to be acting in, or do you think I'm right, that they are in some ways acting irrationally?
2: I, I think the, the, the element that you may not appreciate uh, to answer the predicament you're facing, John, is the level of internal discipline within the two main civil war parties. So I can remember being uh, Michael McDougall's advisor, and I got a telephone call from a, a Fianna Foyle backbencher asking me, could he ask a parliamentary question of the justice minister asking X, Y, Z. And I, uh, I knew this, I know this TD, this TD socially. He subsequently became a cabinet minister. Uh, and, uh, and I said, well, hang on, you're, you're an elected member of Doyle Aram, You have a constitutional right to ask him whatever you want. And he said, no, 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 ask him, ask him, please. So I go up to McDougal and I give him your man's spiel. And McDougal gives me my spiel. He says, well, he's an elected member of Doyle Aram, but this is the way discipline operates within Fianna Fáil. You do not break wind on a topic without clearing it with the minister. Uh, so so the, the the letter from the three Fine Gael Jr. ministers, there's no way that was constructed without clearance from above. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the problem with this is, it has the advantage of making the parties disciplined political machines. But if... The, the wrong people get control of the party, that discipline is turned to suppress dissent. And we had that when Hawi led Fianna Fáil. Uh, and now we're getting it in, in advance of a sort of a politically correct agenda that is isn't bothered with delivery to voters of key things like housing, health and education. And to, to my mind, the, the only real discipline that Fina and Fianna face, it's not internal discipline from disaffected members. It is the external discipline of electoral punishment by rival parties. And I think uh, I, I voted with the, the party leadership to disband the progressive Democrats, and I think I made a mistake that day. If, if the PD still existed, even in a significantly shrunken form, the party's mere existence would act as a, a, a political break to a certain extent of, of the you know the, the wilder aspects of, of, of what the government parties are doing.
0: Yeah, and I, I have to say we had a discussion on this show a couple of weeks ago about the the rural independence, or I think we did, <laughs> I hope we did, about the rural independence where it's thinking of forming a political party uh, uh, about whose prospects I must, must say I am sceptical because I don't believe I don't believe that it's in any of their individual interests to join a political party, even though it's in the c- country's collective interest. For there to be some kind of threat to Fianna Fáil and Finnegale on the flank, on which they do not currently feel threatened, which is the one the PDs would have threatened them on. But um, it, I mean, and and you, the last time you were on this show, Cormac, we talked about the reasons why it's so difficult to get a political party off the ground. But Sarah, there must be some of these young, young younger TDs. I'm thinking of. James e. O'Connor, I'm thinking of some of the younger people in Fine Gale who've been denied advancement who are now leaving politics. Like I think John Paul Feeney, although I understand there are health reasons there, is going to be a huge loss to politics. Um, I think Joe McHugh, I know he's a former minister and he had a run, but I think he's a loss to politics if he's leaving. I think Alwyn Enright years ago when she left politics was a loss to politics. Are there none of these people, uh, you know some of them better than I, Sarah, who are who are going to say, well, it's time to to try something different, even to, to shake up the leadership with a leadership challenge. I mean, Cormac talks about discipline, but it's not that long ago since the current Taoiseach was challenging Enda Kenny for the leadership of this party when they were in the doldrums. Um, so so there is still occasionally an impulse, or there used to be, to shake things up. Where's that gone?
1: I don't know. I think that it's gotten... Well, Like, I'm, just speaking from the point of view of Feed of Fida like I, there was definitely a few times in the last couple of years where I thought something might happen I think Michal's done a good job of, of um, you know, promoting and not promoting selective people um, to keep himself insulated from anything like that. I think a lot of people who are TDs are just, there. there's a sense that they think that their demise is inevitable and they're just sitting back and waiting for it to end. I mean, that's the only logical conclusion I can come to at this point, because, in different times, I don't think Mihal would have survived Fianna Fáil being on fifteen percent for this month, for this long.
0: No, or Leo Varadkar would survive Fine Gael being its current predicament. Bear in mind no. their their position in the polls is now worse than what it was in the two thousand and two election, where I think was the last good election Cormac that the PDs had, um, and or maybe two thousand and seven was. Forgive me if I'm wrong, but 2 yeah, oh yeah, two. And that was that was based on Finnegale being slightly better off in the opinion polls than they currently are. Um, And another
1: thing, by the way, another thing, sorry, John, is that, you know, people talk about people in Leinster House and TDs living in a bubble or whatever. And that's true to a point, but they're not that much in a bubble. And I think they're afraid of their life of an election. And I think that everybody knows that if you started messing around and trying to do heaves and trying to do this and trying to do that, you might cause an election. And I think they're afraid of that.
0: Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we've identified all the problems and it's it's been been a very depressing podcast so far (laughs) because we haven't haven't really identified any potential solutions. But I wanted to turn, because we've got a little bit of extra time, to the topic of, uh, Cormac, the, the the hate speech bill, because you were mentioning it before we came on, and I notice um, that your old employer, Michael McDowell, and Ronan Mullen, to their to their credit, and maybe Sharon kiogan as well, are the only three politicians in Leinster House who are making a case, but they're actually getting some significant traction from the public. I I don't think, and I I say this with respect and affection for Michael McDowell, I don't think he's had this much public support in a long time on any issue. And certainly that's true of Ronan Mullen. And yet that topic, I mean, it seems to be one where the debate is making absolutely no difference and and the bill is going to be passed regardless. But do you think that signals or the support that they're getting for what they're saying, signals a kind of an underground shift in Irish politics? I mean, I sound a little bit optimistic here when I say this, maybe I'm overblowing it entirely, but I do get the feeling that there's a shift happening that the political system hasn't cottoned on to on a lot of these issues. And is that your view as well?
2: Or am I... Well, 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 well I think people are are, are looking with a, a genuine sense of horror at political discourse in the United States and the United Kingdom. Uh, and, and this debate that happened the other night was at Oxford University. They're looking at things like that, and they're saying... Good God, we we just don't want that coming here. And then they see this piece of this poorly worded piece of legislation. And for all intents and purposes, it is reflecting that uh, and assisting bringing that sort of idiotic political discourse to Ireland, where instead of attempting to rationally debate things, you're you're, you're sur- severely circumscribed as to what you may say, and then you may face the threat of legal action. And then you've got the guardie, uh, you know, having to follow up on a complaint somebody has malevolently made against you, and it just just does not make any sense. And the the, the, the thing that really frightens me, John, and here we're coming back to the question of party discipline. Where are the dissenting voices in Fine Gael and Foil? Where are they? You know, th- this legislation, I would have thought, was rather obviously flawed, but yet everybody's just keeping their head down. And I think this is another aspect of the political system that is causing immense unease among voters. It's the feeling that the entire political class has been bought or compromised in some way, and they're all focusing on keeping their head down, and very, very few are willing to speak openly and honestly. And I, I think that that's one reason I'm going to put a 10 or 20 euros on Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I think he is the absolute opposite of that bought, compromised politician who's sticking with the party line. And even though he, he may be accused of being a crackpot on a number of issues, uh, no doubt some justice, but even that I, I've, I've watched several videos, uh, interviews with him and I find it to be emotionally authentic, to be very appealing as an, an individual and he's alive, Just not what you can say uh, about Joe Biden. I,
0: I think that's very interesting. I mean, I've, I've been instinctively sort of writing him off on the grounds that I, I, I just can't see the Democratic Party, which so enthusiastically embraced lockdowns and school closures and all the rest of it, turning around voting for somebody with Robert F. Kennedy's views on vaccination. That's been my... But I think, regardless of whether I'm right or wrong on that, I think everything else you said is entirely correct. I mean, there's a, there's a kind of... It brings us back to the appeal not that long ago. I mean, Boris Johnson, for all his flaws and the fact that he's out of office, uh, never lost in his life an election that he contested. Donald Trump did, but he, he, he won in 2016 by being shocking... And mainly by saying things that people felt couldn't be said anymore, and we hear an awful lot in Ireland about the rise of the far right, which I think is entirely under overblown. But it wouldn't surprise me here if you actually got somebody who was willing to speak openly and refreshingly and transparently without fear of what the press says about him or her. If that person didn't catch fire, as long as they weren't, you know, a crackpot. Um. Great. So, so I think there's um, there's 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 this this huge. I think. There's this huge sense... Sarah, you were saying a couple of weeks ago about... Um, I think you called it the nod. You know, the nod that people have, you know, if you are you meet a stranger and there's like this little dance where you decide if you can talk about something openly or if somebody is of the same wavelength of you. But there's so many people who are sick of doing that dance and just want the open, refreshing conversation on the kind of topics that we've been discussing here and, and, and a whole range of, of others. So, I mean, I suppose... I'm I'm really asking where, where is that person going to come from in Ireland? Um, it might be Robert F. Kennedy in the U.S. It might be Ron DeSantis. It might be, heaven knows, it might be Donald Trump again. I hope not, but it could be. Um, I mean, where where, where from whence could that kind of thing come? I mean, I think it'd come from Michael McDowell he put his mind to it, but I presume he doesn't want to. Well,
1: the depressing thing is I don't know, John, because I don't. I, I do think that you know the the the. That, that nod is you know becoming more and more common. I'm certainly becoming noticing more and more that people are just sick of, you know, the the, the the like Cormac's talking about the culture wars and everything that's happened in America, whatever. But it is here to a large extent already and people are are sick of being told what to think and, and what they are and aren't allowed or what's off limits and you can't say this and you can't say that. Turns out you can say whatever you like. So I think that, that there is a space for somebody to emerge to have these, you know, to be honest. And that was part of the appeal of Trump for a lot of people, was that he just said whatever he wanted and he didn't care what people Mm -hmm. thought. And obviously a lot of what he said was completely insane, but some of it was funny and some of it was silly. And it was just, I can see how, you know, if you'd had years of Hillary, Clintons and this and that, that somebody who just came out and said the truth or said whatever they wanted was refreshing. And Mm -hmm. But the thing about it in Ireland is that I had no idea where that would come from, to be honest. um, I think that, like, yeah, but somebody like MacDill, you know, the, the the some of the discourse would be so, so improved by the PD still being around. But ultimately, that kind of honesty, that kind of, you know, someone in step, much more in step with what the public think on a lot of issues, I don't see where it's
0: coming from. All right. Well, on that cheery note, <laughs> we might, might say goodbye. Cormac, do you have anything else to add? Well, just on that final point,
2: uh, the time that Michael may have achieved peak personal popularity might have been 2004, uh, when in the face of pretty much universal opposition from the great and the good, the citizenship referendum was passed by almost four holds to one. So it, it didn't surprise me at all last Sunday to see the Sunday Business Post uh, you know, carrying an opinion poll. That said, that three quarters of voters were concerned that their that immigration levels may be too high,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, I think there are a couple of big issues there, such as that, such as crime, such as taxes, such as the the feeling that there is a blob that is permanently in control, whoever, whatever the composition, the party composition of the government, uh, mm-hmm. and is always pushing the same agenda, and it always gets to win. Uh, And, you know, you could, you could have a guy like Michael McDoole leading something, you could have a guy like Joe Broly, for all I know, I've no, you know, I know his his, his father was a Sinn Féin MLA, but you could have a a major person, or you could have some, a buyer in in a constituency, and there's some community thing that's gone wrong, and uh, a local uh, person stands against that, and there's a lot of I think there's a lot of tinder wood lying around, ready to ignite, but mm-hmm. it just needs it needs a flame, it needs a spark.
0: Yeah, and 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 the funny thing is, I I can I can feel that wood getting drier and drier and drier and drier and drier. I just I just can't see the spark. But you know, you never see the spark. That's how far fires start. Um, you were the spark that's going to home from. There'd be no fire. Anyway, we we'll leave it there for this week. We didn't even talk in depth about that opinion poll, um, last week. But I think it speaks for itself. Three quarters of the public uh, are opposed broadly to the positions of the entire political establishment, the the entire political commentariat, and the entirety of the Irish media, which says a lot about where the country is at because I remember a time not that long ago when somebody quite close to me, I think it was 2002, Nice Treaty Referendum, was heard to say that if Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, and Labour, who were the three big parties at the time, were in favour of something, you couldn't really go wrong supporting it. I think that attitude has kind of begun to evaporate significantly. Um, and it does, as Cormac said, I think, just need a spark. But we'll leave it there for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Um, I've been John McGurk. She's been Sarah Ryan. And our guest has been Mr. Cormac Lucy, whose further thoughts you can read in his column on the, in the Sunday Times this Sunday. Thanks as ever for listening. Uh, Sarah and I will be back next week for another edition of The Week That Really Was.